Hello and welcome to Writing the Coast, the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. I'm your host, Megan Cole. On Writing the Coast, I interview the authors and illustrators whose books have been shortlisted for the annual prizes. Over the past year, I've had the privilege of reading and getting to know so many writers and illustrators through their nominated work. And I'm sure I'm not alone in saying, I wish we could give a prize to everyone. There are so many fabulous books that showcase the exceptional talent in BC and the Yukon, and it is an honor to be able to introduce you to some of these amazing people. When I saw that Helen Knott's book, In My Own Moccasins, was shortlisted for the Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize, I was excited. I read Helen's memoir last year and immediately began recommending it to folks I knew. Helen's writing is beautiful and her story is captivating. I was drawn in by her vulnerability and also the power of her storytelling. Helen begins our conversation with a reading from the beginning of her book, In My Own Moccasins. So I'm starting at the beginning of In My Own Moccasins, chapter one. You can feel a mother's lament in her voice. The tone of her words penetrates the skin and hits bone. It hits something deeper than bone. It hits spirit. The chest feels as if someone is pushing on it with brute force and that breath, that one breath, is a struggle to get in and get out. Remorse shapes the sounds leaving her mouth and they become a rough edge, grief-filled symphony. A mixture of wailing and words that cannot be unheard. You wince. You attempt to display no signs of your internal reactions to the shame that gets caught in her throat. But every hesitation in her story proves that silence can be a tangible beast as it forcibly pulls your head down to a lowered position. You feel every struggled sentence as she speaks. Or maybe you have to be a mother to feel it. Or maybe you have to be a mother who once neglected her own to feel it. They almost lost me that time. I almost lost myself. Thank you. So you asked me earlier uh, how long I've been writing for. I want to know how you started writing. I remember uh, going to school in kindergarten. Well, actually, I don't remember this. This is a story. So my dad told me uh, when I came back from school and being angry because I didn't learn how to read the first day. And I remember like pretend writing. So just making a bunch of illegible like nonsense and curly cues on paper and like on checks, like blank checks, um, but always being fascinated and wanting to learn like, well, how do I read and how do I write? And when I started writing, um, and it was just with journals, but making up like alternate worlds uh, or alternate realities for myself within journal processes and getting in trouble in grade one for doing that. So writing has always been there in that regard. And then it transformed in my teenage years into something that was more of a crutch, like something that helped keep me alive, essentially, um, because it was cathartic and allowed me to make sense of the world around me or to attempt to make sense. It wasn't until I think I was 
in my 20s that um, I started, you know, sharing my writing because it had always been there, but not really sharing it too much outside of my family um, and then sharing it and and working on getting things published from that point forward. What was that process like for you to start sharing your work and putting it out there to get published? It was so scary <laughs> sharing work um, because writing can be so personal too. And it was funny because around the, the, the same time, like I was doing a lot of work in regards to like advocacy and social justice and I could, um, I was still a really shy person. Um, so I could, I could brave an audience and do those things. But when it came to starting to share my work, I had to relearn how to do that because it was like, oh, this is a new level. Like this is actually me sharing. And it was, it was challenging, uh, but also worthwhile. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine like starting the process to, to write in my own moccasins, which is a memoir. So very personal, um, did you feel prepared for it after, you know, starting to publish your work or was it a whole new thing for you? I think a lot of the stuff that I had published beforehand wasn't necessarily what well, it wasn't to the same level of, of sharing that I had did or uh, wasn't as revealing as in my own moccasins. And I, I think everything that I've done has kind of not just within writing, but within um, my life in general was kind of leading up to that point to be able to enter into a place where I was um, vulnerable and allowing parts of myself to be seen that I had previously struggled with. It was still scary and I had multiple freakouts along the way, not just about the content I was sharing, but like also the writer in me, like, is my writing any good? <laughs> <You know? laughs> Was this a mistake? Who am I? And all of these questions that I surrounded myself with. So yeah, it was it was definitely a a very testing process. I really liked what you uh, said during your fold talk a couple weekends ago. I guess it was, and because you talked a lot about like compassion and care for ourselves as writers, which I don't think we hear enough of. What did you do for yourself as you were writing the book to make sure you were really taking care of yourself, Helen, through the process? It depended on where I was at. Like sometimes it would be something small, like I would do the whole like bath time thing or yoga or going for a walk. But if it was something big that I was working through and it took a lot of emotional energy or kind of put me in a certain state then I would often go to the water. So I'd go down to the water, the Peace River that runs through here, and, you know, lay some tobacco, say some prayers, and just kind of ask for the water to help me learn how to be more like it, um, to be flexible and to, to move through obstacles. And, yeah, so there was things like that. But then also the presence of my mom helped me a lot through writing the book. So... If I needed to cry it out, she would just hold me. I had to learn how to just, I guess, like fall apart and, and be put back together through the process of writing. I think it is really important to be mindful of, you know, if you are working through hard content and writing through that, 
that, uh, and I think I said that, that you come before the story. And so right now with the work that I'm writing, you know, if I write five minutes that day and if that kind of puts me in a place where I'm like, okay, I'm emotionally like worked up or a little too much. I'm okay with shutting my computer for the, for the day or my laptop and being like, that's it. You know, it was just five minutes today and maybe the next day it would be 30 minutes, but being very gentle with myself in that, in that process. Mm-hmm. I think we forget sometimes as writers, especially when we are dealing with the, the tough stuff, like it's not like other jobs necessarily that productivity and creativity clash is so real for us sometimes. The productivity and creativity, yeah. And then sometimes, like, obviously, it's, like, forcing yourself to just sit down and write. But usually that's that's different than really heavily emotionally charged stuff. If it's – I don't like put it, I don't like working on details in my books. Like, oh, like, this happened at this time and confirming dates and pulling up things um, to jog my memory. Or if it was a story, confirming some of the details – around that story that was told to me. So the, the research stuff, I don't like doing those things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so those are things that I could work on sometimes, um, or make that time to sit down and force myself to do those things. Cause it's not heavy emotional, like labor. It's more just like, okay, you can actually make yourself sit, sit down and do some of this. Yeah. <laughs> Did you find the writing of the book healing for you? Yes, definitely. It was it was really healing because it's like even with certain parts of it, the first draft would be like really emotional, uh, sometimes angry. And I could kind of see where I was at with things and then being able to go back through it and think about these moments and sit with them um, and feel through them. So it wasn't just the writing about them, but feeling through them. And I think feeling through things also gives you a certain freedom, too. So Mm -hmm. I experienced a lot of that through the writing of this memoir. What was the, the experience like for you as you started to dive back into those memories? Did you keep journals to revisit while you were writing? No, like I had one, I remember like when I was maybe like one, I wasn't even really one day sober. Yeah, one day sober maybe. And we were on our way to a ceremony. I bought a notebook because we stopped somewhere to grab some things. And I brought a notebook and I remember writing some details down in there. But I didn't really have a lot of journals at that time, it was more like a process of memory, which is funny because I have a box of like old notebooks that I kind of lug around from place to place <laughs> that uh, I filled up during like more of my teenage years. And I didn't really use a lot of that, but some of it was good just in terms of seeing like where was my mind state during that time? What was my internal narrative? And what did that look like? So there were sometimes, I guess maybe just in like one section that I I used some of that material, but it wasn't something that I relied on a lot, which I wish I probably, I wish I did keep, I guess, more notebooks or journals. Were the memories like right on the surface for you or was there a lot of kind of bringing them back up through the writing? Uh, Definitely bringing them back up through the writing and having to sit there and go into things and 
sit with story and kind of, and when you sit with stories, I was calling it back into being and feeling it. And I think when you're somebody who lives in a survival mode for a long time, and especially if you're living through a lot of trauma, you don't sit with stories that often. Um, they're more things that are just kind of shuffled away and you're, you're focused on forgetting a lot of the stories and surviving the present. And so going back and doing that, sometimes it was hard because these were things that I tried hard for such a long time to not sit with <laughs> and then having to pull them up. And then the addition of me being like an addict alcoholic and then given the task of writing a memoir, I was like, that's kind of cruel. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and our brains actually work against us in that way too, where they they help us forget because it's like the the coping mechanism. They don't want us to remember our trauma. Yeah, the the shutdown and closing off of memories if they're if they're too intense. Yeah. As you were writing, uh, Kelly Thompson uh, put this question to me to ask you on Twitter. She was curious about as you were writing how you chose what to hold back and what to put on the page. I think with that, especially when you're telling memoirs and if they're intertwined with so much family stories too. So it was looking at, okay, so I can't escape telling stories of my mom and dad and my grandma and grandpa before them because that's looking at, A, like where do we come from um, and how did we end up where we where we were and what does that generational process look like in regards to not only trauma but culture and the push away from culture or the pull to culture and spirituality and then when it came kind of beyond that like I refer to all my aunties of which I have four just as aunties I never name any of them so trying to wherever I could leave out details and for me that was realizing that other people are still on their healing journeys and I don't want to interrupt those processes or be make it more burden burdensome with my own truth telling because for me this was a part of like my own liberation and having the go ahead for my mom and dad to say what I needed to say so being able to do that and have their blessing and then knowing that I didn't want to cause harm through my storytelling or through my truth telling and was very mindful of that, of like, okay, well, I'm not even going to name my brothers or give them names or tell anything about their stories or s certain parts of my son's story where I'm like, those belong to him. And I can't put that out in the world, knowing that one day that truth will be there. And he'll be like, oh, you told everybody. <laughs> and being like, no, that's not, that's not just my journey. Those, some of those journeys are really shared and I don't want to go into that space. Mm -hmm. And I think like what I really uh, admired so much in your book was your ability to write about your experiences and your trauma. But I think I've heard other people talk about this where you you write around it and you use the beautiful craft, but you don't have to like go out there and lay it all out on the page. You almost you let the writing kind of veil it in a way. But you know it's there. You don't have to, like, say it. I think there was only one story, and that was a story, like, when I was, like, 17, and I kind of went into depth of, like, wh how that story played out um, or how that event played out. And 
I think this is what you mean is like not going into like tons of detail, but you're, you're aware of like what happened and the magnitude. And I did that, I think like kind of purposefully too, because I know how I feel when I read things as like a survivor of like sexual abuse and sexual violence. When I read things that are, are really straightforward or that go into a lot of detail that it makes me feel a certain way. And I didn't want to feel that way, not only just while writing it, but for readers who are reading it and um, adding on to that, that I know that sometimes that there was books that I read that kind of taken me into that uncomfortable place where it did help heal some of that too. But those were choices that I made in regards to like what I wanted it to feel like. Mm-hmm. Something I was hoping you could talk a little bit about is the way you approach the the structure of your book. I know a lot of us like, you know, we imagine our stories chronologically because that's the way stories are told to us in books and movies. Um, but I was wondering how you decided to approach that for your memoir. It's funny because I have this like writing mentor um, and I currently like send him pieces and he'll be like, I'd like to see this like and he's so big on chronological order and I'm always <laughs> and even today I was going downstairs to do my dishes and I was like, fuck chronological order. Sorry, I don't have a lot to say. <laughs> but I was like, stick it. I hate it. And then, um, and for me, I don't I don't know. I just I didn't want to go from one point A to point B. And I think it's because I have like and I don't want to say like uh impatience for me like it feels boring for me as a writer to write like that where I have a lack of of tolerance and discipline to write something out in chronological order it almost feels like tedious if I make it like that so choosing to write the way that I did was was just allowing that guess expressive part to come out and I knew that it would be challenging for some people too just to jump around within the story but I knew how I wanted it to be done and I think often we have these ideas of I wonder if this will work and sometimes we don't we don't have the conviction or the belief that we can do that and it's coming for me it's coming to this place of like oh we're all just like making things up out here like no one really knows what they're doing and with that book I I felt like I still needed permission to to bring something to life the way that I wanted to and I got that at the Banff writer studio where someone sat with me or with Tiana Harris sat with me and kind of mapped out the structure and said yeah you can do it that way why can't you and I was like oh okay and so now paying attention to other people how and how they do structure within their books and saying like, oh, see, I can do it like this or um, I like a transition that looks like this. And it doesn't need to be the way that we we the world says it ought to be. I think that's one of the things that's so exciting with work like yours and um, other books I've read recently is it seems like there's so many folks who are just 
who are taking those chances and looking outside the box that we normally thought we had to write inside. And it's, it's so inspiring to see people play with structure and voice and all those things in the way that you did with uh, your book. I wanted to ask you about, uh, about the writing community and the people that um, you have kind of found in the community who've been your mentors and your guides uh, through that experience. Because I know you, you were in social work before, so it's kind of a new, maybe a new world. Um, are there people who have been fundamental for you in, in, as you've shaped yourself as a writer? Yes, I would say um, Kim Anderson has been definitely the fundamental for for me. So she um, does more like academic collections and she edits them and and has written them. And her first book, um, I don't know if it was her first book actually, but it's called A Recognition of Being. Her first book was like... uh, very formative for me like I came in my formative years when I was trying to understand what it meant to be an indigenous woman in the world and making sense of experiences anyways um I worked with her and I have a article published in Kitsanak another collection and it focused on the connection between land and body violence when it comes to indigenous women and so my involvement with her started there and then it kind of ventured into this creative nonfiction world where, you know, she read through my manuscript and gave me, gave me those extra pushes and nudges and belief in myself to continue forward on that work. And then now I would say within like this writing world, Richard Van Camp has helped a lot um, in just even in regards into promoting my book, but also with that initial, initial belief in myself before it came out and kind of being open and receptive to helping or reviewing new work. And then Daryl McLeod, who wrote Mama Scotch, which won the Governor General's Award. He calls me Nissums, which means like little sister. And that actually was a relationship that came from um, when I was in the RBC Taylor Emerging Writers Mentorship. So, but I met him in Toronto last year. And he was linked up as my mentor. And that relationship has just kind of continued forward where it's not even just about writing. Like he'll review pieces for me and give me some input and feedback. And um, but also just check in with me, you know, if especially after I, I lost my mom and making sure that I'm all right and holding that that space for me. So I'm really grateful for for some of these people who have ventured into my life and have helped hold me up in more more than just the writing world. And even after I lost my mom to Richard Van Kemp would send me like little things to read or stories. And I knew it was just as part of like trying to make me smile or take my mind off of things. And yeah, so I'm, I'm grateful for those relationships. I had the chance to interview Daryl uh, last year for the podcast and he, he is so lovely. I'm just curious what the lessons you learned about the journey of writing uh, in my own moccasins. I know that you will never feel like you're done. (laughs) 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 That the editing has to stop somewhere. Uh, And I think that it's actually worth 
worth that um, lengthy process that it is, like undertaking that journey of, of writing a book, because I am a creature of instant gratification, and I like things done fast and then over with, and put out. Um, and so this process, which was really long and um, sometimes tedious, was was worth it. It was worth creating something that um, that will have a life of its own outside of me. And that is uh, is probably one of the, the the biggest lessons because it keeps me disciplined and in writing now, knowing that that's the outcome. What's the experience like to, to see the, the life your book has had since you finished it? It was really cool. Um, like just the other day I got a email from a professor in like Pennsylvania and he was talking about my book and then someone else, uh, a nurse wrote me from Alberta. And I think one of my favorites was a lady from, I believe they they live in the Vancouver area or on the island, but her mother had read the book and her mom was in her late 80s and her mom wanted to to write me a card to send me something. And so I gave her my mailing address and receiving this letter from this like elderly woman um, talking about what my book meant to her. And I think it opens the space of this, these like beautiful, sometimes small, but relationships with people or short-lived relationships but where there's a lot of depth because people will, will share you know because they feel like they they know you or they have lived through parts of your experiences and so being able to witness other people's truths um, and that's something I'm always really honored by has been the best part hmm. what are you working on now I'm working on a book that I'm calling it calling uh becoming a matriarch and so uh it's writing in this space where I have lost my mom and my grandma has um dementia and they have been like like the, the they've been the hearts right or the heads of of the family and um living in this space at at 32 and trying to figure out how do I move forward and what does my role role look like, but also moving through a lot of that that grief of of mother loss and looking at well what teachings and lessons have they left behind for me? I heard you talk about the the structure of it and um, the collecting of the bones in your talk in your talk at the fold, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so the structure. Um, so the structure is the body and it's about going to like going on this journey as a whole. Um, I'm wanting to prepare myself for, for that journey as a woman. And so it uses the body as a framework and then it has the additional chapters of dreams, heart and water. And those were chosen because I'm like, those are integral to, to my being as an indigenous woman and on my journey as well and dreams as a, as a knowledge source, um, as a way to like receive messages, especially if I'm looking at it, well, the way that I look at it, <laughs> but through my like tribal, uh, done as a lens 
where it's a, a way of like being and knowing. And um, there's a story in When Women Were Wolves, and it just talks about Liloba, and it's this older kind of like, I want to put it in quotations, you can't see it, but like folklore tale of this woman who wanders the desert and she collects bones and she collects the bones of things that are in danger of being lost. And when she has a full set, she sits with the bones and she thinks of what song she needs to sing them. And when she finally has that song, she'll sing it. And as she sings, flesh grows back onto the bones and muscles and then eventually fur and that animal becomes whole again. And I remember sitting with that thought and I'm like, wow, like what is in danger of being lost? And I find in this transition, it's everything. And initially this book was meant to be something else. It was more just about walking, walking and carrying myself in this world as an Indigenous woman. And it was going to focus a lot more on a decolonial aspect and kind of pulling apart different things maybe a little bit more academic and after you know walking with my mom through her sickness and that transition from this physical world into the spirit world and you know having my grandma in the hospital and her not knowing um you know sometimes not knowing who I am and realizing that you know, this book is no longer what it was because I have to, I have to make sense of what I'm going through right now. And in a way, sometimes it is pretty difficult to sit in that space, but in a way I'm like, I'm so grateful that I have writing to help me through this because otherwise I don't know how I would, would be able to, I guess, to walk through these changes that I'm going through right now in my life. Thanks so much to Helen for being on the podcast. And as always, thank you for listening and subscribing and talking about Writing the Coast. It means a lot to us that you enjoy what we do and that you share it with others. If you're interested in finding out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, and if you want updates on what's going on with the gala and other things related to the prizes, don't forget to check out our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com, and you can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Next time on the podcast, you'll hear my conversation with cookbook author Emily Lycopolis, who wrote the cookbook Cedar and Salt, Vancouver Island Recipes from Forest, Farm, Field, and Sea with her co-author, Danielle Aiken. Until we meet again here on the podcast airwaves and maybe one day in the future, I hope you enjoy some good food. You're going to want to pick up cedar and salt for your summer barbecues. Um, Support your local booksellers, support BC publishers, and read some great books.